Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Thanksgiving is uh, just around the corner, and you know, just a little quick show of hands. How many of you are already starting to think, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be thankful? I guess I'm the only pagan in the crowd. I'm sorry, but uh, no, whenever Thanksgiving gets close, I'm always thinking, okay, I'm supposed to be thankful, and then I really get the guilt trip because then I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to be thankful just on the fourth Thursday of each November, but I'm supposed to be thankful all year long, you know, and that's really the truth. But I, you know, I'm not going to ask for show of hands anymore since none of you guys are being honest today. But, uh, you know, I think all of us probably struggle with being thankful. I mean, it's just not natural. You know, we're self-made people. We, you know, think we're pretty independent. We are successful and we accomplish a lot. And so, I mean, who are we supposed to be thankful to? I mean, we did all this stuff. We bought that. We earned that. We fixed that. We did that, you know? And the truth of the matter is we all know we're supposed to be thankful to God. Uh, Here's a proposition that I want to kind of govern our thinking today. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is not giving credit for what he has done. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is not giving God credit for what he has done. Now, I bring all that up because I would like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to continue on in our uh, study of the life of Christ. And we're really at a pretty crucial moment in the life of Christ. We've been walking through how Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And last week, in chapter 12, verse 14, we saw a major change. In chapter 12, verse 14, after Jesus had uh, had some discussions with the religious leaders... What did the leaders do? They came to the conclusion that he had to be destroyed. I mean, he didn't just need to be killed. He didn't just need to be neutralized. He needed to be destroyed. I mean, we want to get rid of him and we want to get rid of everything about him. We don't want him just dying and becoming some martyr that a whole bunch of people end up following anyway. We want to destroy him. Well, you know what we're going to see today? We're going to see that today, whether it was intentional or whether they just stumbled into it, basically the religious leaders found the reason that they could use to get rid of Jesus. Okay, I've been likening Jesus's ministry so far to kind of a presidential campaign. He's been going through uh, Galilee, performing miracles, doing all kinds of things to uh, 
let people know that he's the king who has come to institute the kingdom. And we've been seeing for a couple of weeks that, you know, it wasn't flying. He was going to be rejected. It was obvious. Anyone that could read the, the signs would, would knew that it was just a matter of time before they were going to do something about him. They were going to get rid of him. And so what Jesus is doing here is, is he's kind of forcing the issue with the, with the people that they've got to make a decision about him. And the religious leaders last week, in chapter 12, verse 14, they made the decision. He's got to be destroyed. But how are we going to do that? I mean, because my goodness, the guy takes a, a little boy's lunch and he feeds 5,000 men with it and all their wives and family and the whole thing. I mean, how do you do that? This guy can look at a blind man and make him see. This guy can take a lame person, make him walk. A dumb person and make him be able to speak. What do you do with this guy? We've got to come up with some kind of a, a response. We need a slogan to defeat this candidate. You know, all these politicians that ran this last week, I'm sure all of them had some kind of a response or some kind of a slogan. What was going to be the reason why Jesus needed to go? That's what we're going to see today. They found out what that reason would be. So here's basically how the how our time's going to lay out. We're going to look at this miracle that Jesus did. And then we're going to see how the Pharisees responded to it. But we're mostly going to see what Jesus said about it in response. And then, like I like to do, we're going to just ask ourselves, so what? So... Here's what, here's what happened. Here's, here's this miracle, okay? Look at it in chapter 12, verse 22. Now, Matthew tells this thing real quickly because the, the miracle wasn't really the big thing he wanted us to get. What he really wants us to get is how the Pharisees responded to it. Then there was brought to him, this is Matthew 12, verse 22. Then there was brought to Jesus... A demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. Now, I'm not sure that the people really knew that the guy was demon-possessed. They just knew he was blind and he was dumb. And Jesus heals people that are blind and dumb and lame and have leprosy and all kinds of other things. And so they, the religious leaders, brought this guy to Jesus. Why? Because they knew that what Jesus did usually... <laughs> When he saw someone that had a need, is he met that need? They need to walk, he makes them walk. They need to see, he makes them see. They got leprosy, he usually cleanses them. So this is kind of a setup, but they realize Jesus is going to fix this guy. But he's got a bigger problem than just he can't see and he can't speak. He's demon-possessed. Look at verse 22. There was brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Can this guy be the Messiah? They knew that the son of David was ultimately going to be this Messiah. I mean, could this guy be that guy? 
And look what happens. Verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, let's just stop right here. Matthew tells this miracle real quickly, because like I said, the main point is going to be how these Pharisees responded. He says he's of Satan. They said he's of Satan. He did this in the spirit and power of Satan. That's how he did it. We'll get to that in just a minute. But let's, this is the first time since we've been talking through the life of Jesus that we've, we've seen a demon-possessed person and that demon gets cast out of him. And so let's just, let's just pause a minute and just talk about that. Maybe we're not all up to speed on just what exactly is going on here. Okay, first of all, what's a demon? A demon is a fallen angel. Okay, way back before creation of the earth, God had all these angels. And evidently, his highest created angel was Lucifer, who was beautiful and intelligent and and very powerful and had tons of authority. And we read about this in Isaiah 14. We read about it in Ezekiel 28. Evidently, he was filled with pride and and uh, desire, and Lucifer somehow, as irrational as it was, as it seems, Lucifer felt he could take God on. He thought he could rise higher. He's a created being, and yet he thought he could rise higher than the Creator. And so that that sin of pride and arrogance and rebellion against God caused God to cast him down. And according to Revelation, I think it's Revelation 13, it seems to indicate that when Lucifer was cast out, roughly a third of the angels went with him. Those angels fell, so to say, with Satan, and they have become demons. So a demon is basically an angel who is in rebellion to God against God, and they are in allegiance with Satan, Lucifer, the devil. And so a lot of times in, throughout particularly the life of Christ, we see Jesus casting out, dealing with demons. So what's a demon? A demon is a fallen angel who is working the work of Satan, doing the bidding of Satan, seeking to wage war with God Almighty. And so much of it happened during the life of Christ because you've got the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, right there. Uh, One of the things that demons do is they possess people. That always kind of raises the question is, okay, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm born again. I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Can a believer be possessed by a demon? You know, and really, Scripture doesn't just fully give us all the information on it, but probably not, to be honest. You know, when you think about the fact that a believer... The moment they become a Christian, they become a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away, new things come. 
Uh, their body is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself takes up residence in our life. There's all these wonderful things that happen. It's kind of hard to imagine that a demon could also possess that person. So most of us don't think that a believer could be de- demon-possessed like an unbeliever can. But a demon can oppress a believer. And like one guy I read this last week, the difference between possession and oppression isn't much. And so all that to say, you know what? This is serious stuff. And I know I'm going really fast here, and this is, you know, really several sermons for another days. But the truth of the matter is, folks, we are in a spiritual war. There is an evil enemy who is the sworn enemy of God. And when we trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior and we become new creations in Christ and we become citizens of heaven, we become his enemy as well. Satan is your enemy. You are Satan's enemy in his mind. And Satan has a host of demons that he can unleash to wreak havoc here against the program of God, the will of God. You know, perhaps a believer cannot be possessed, but they certainly can be oppressed. And all of this just just goes to tell us, I mean, we, like 1 Peter 5, 7 says, We need to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, you know, I could talk more and more about it, but, you know, I, you know, I feel certain that there have been situations that I've been in where I've seen it. And maybe if you've been around enough and thought about it enough, you've seen it as well. I mean, Satan is alive and powerful. You know, we're not talking, you know, hocus pocus here. We're not talking all kinds of stuff that is just, you know, Hollywood here. We're talking about real life stuff. Because when you see in Scripture what what Satan does sometimes in the lives of people, I mean, it is horrible. We always think, too, that, you know, it's like, you know, it manifests itself in some kind of disease or some kind of huge, you know, uh, mental illness or whatever. But the truth of the matter is I think Satan is very, very sharp. And there's a lot of white-collar demon possession that's out there. You know, these intellectual people that look like they're benign, but the truth of the matter is the philosophical things that they're pushing you know, are just straight from the pit of hell. And how much of that is, is, is the work of Satan or just our own sinfulness? It's hard to say, but it's all coming out of evil. And so, you know, I'm going to move on here, but this is, this is huge. And I think that we dare not just look at it Lightly, you know, because I think some of the movies we watch, some of the games people play, some of the places that people frequent, I mean, they really are 
dens of iniquity. They really are dens of evil. I mean, this is not a, a, just something to blow off or something to, you know, dismiss as, you know, just a B-rated movie. This is, this is huge. So here's this, this demon-possessed guy brought to Jesus. Jesus casts the demon out, and all of a sudden he can see and he can speak. You know, not everyone that's blind, not everyone that can't speak is demon-possessed, but, I mean, that's one of the ways that it could manifest itself. At least that's how it manifested here. And so you go to verse 23, the people are saying, man, is this the Messiah? And what did the Pharisees say in verse 24? They said, no, this man is doing this in the spirit and power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Well, look at verse 25. That's what the Pharisees said. But look at what Jesus said. Now, we're going to get into some more stuff that is a little bit harder to, to track with, but I'd encourage you to track with it because uh, this is important stuff. Look at verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Just a little bit of trivia there. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln referred to that verse in his uh, inaugural address in 1860, talking about the United States and how it was a house divided against itself. Um, You know, kind of a veiled allusion to what he kind of thought there, but uh, it's just an interesting piece of trivia there. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, come on, guys. I mean, seriously, how is it that I'm doing my work in the spirit and power of Satan? I mean, is Satan really going to be against Satan? Look at verse 26. If if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? It's like a little civil war going on. And if I by... Beelzebub cast out demons. Well, then who are your sons casting them out by? Consequently, they shall be your judges. You know, it's interesting as I was just kind of thinking about this whole thing, because what Jesus is saying, you know, this is not even logical to say that I'm casting out demons in the power and spirit of, of Satan, you know, because Satan is not a house divided against himself. And, you know, I just, I have you noticed, and I don't want to talk about it too much, but have you noticed In a lot of the wars that are going on, the culture wars that have been going on over the last five, seven, or eight years, why is it that the only target, or at least it seems like the only target, are Bible-believing evangelical Christians who believe in the true gospel of Christ? I mean, if you sit and think about it, there are cults, false religions out there. There are other branches of religions that should be also be targets in those culture wars. But they're not. It's only those of us that are, I think, true born-again believers who really and truly are embracing the Word of God passionately and preaching 
the saving grace of Jesus Christ by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Folks that are drifted away from those fundamentals of the faith, those that are some of some other religion that also thinks that kind of activity is wrong, you're not seeing huge protests against them. And it just makes you wonder, why not? Could it be that the house is not divided against itself? Satan's house. We're the target. Because what we're embracing is not that cultural issue that's on the table, but we're embracing the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that it's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Just think about that. Watch that over as you pay attention to all the stuff that's out there going on. Back to the text. Jesus said that all about this house divided against itself, but look at verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God... Okay, you're saying I'm doing it by Satan's power. That's illogical. I mean, come on, you got to do better than that. And they couldn't do better than that. That was their story, and they were sticking to it, and it was good enough to get him on the cross because no one really even challenged him on it. But Satan was, but Jesus is saying, come on, get real. But the alternative is, verse 28, if I'm doing this, By the Spirit of God, which I am, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds that strong man and then he will plunder his house? Verse 30, we're going to get into, man, we're talking about a whole bunch of controversial stuff today. Demon possession, the house divided against itself, and now we get to talk about the unpardonable sin. I mean, you know, there's like four sermons in one, and, uh, you know, my mama raised a fool, so I'm trying to tackle it all at once here. So here we go. Look at this. He who is, verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, well, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, let me just talk about this for a minute. Because what this is, is the unpardonable sin. You've maybe heard that discussed, and I'll get asked that every once in a while. Even just a few months ago, someone was asking me about the unpardonable sin, you know, because, you know, if you hang around people enough, people that live, you know, know, a looser life or whatever, there's so many people that are like, man, I think I committed it. There's no way in the world God could save me and all that stuff. Let me, let, me just, let me just cut to the chase and just give you the answer, okay? Here's the deal. This sin that is here that Jesus said is unforgivable, it is a unique sin that I believe was only possible at that moment 
at that time with Jesus Christ face to face. Here's the deal. You go throughout the New Testament in particular, and and the, the offer is made that all sins are forgiven, that everything could be forgiven. I mean, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's basically the tenor of all the New Testament. But what is it that's going on here? And evidently what it seems like is going on here is a very special set of circumstances. And one of the elements of that special circumstance is that Jesus Christ is right there present in the power of the Holy Spirit performing the work of God. And they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit who was empowering Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and said, no, he's doing that in spirit and power of Satan. And it was that special set of circumstances that is this unpardonable sin. It's not your adultery. It's not the fact that you cheated on your taxes five years ago and never made it right. It's not the fact that you totally lost your temper and said every name in the book. It's not the fact that you 25 years ago had an affair. It's not something else. The unpardonable sin was this special, unique thing that I think was going on right here with the Pharisees attributing the work of the Holy Spirit and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and saying, That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God doing it. That's Satan doing it. And Satan has has empowered the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. A unique set of circumstances that was just there. Here's the bottom line. Too many people, and I think it's because it's a lie of Satan, they will think, man, I have committed the unpardonable sin. God could never forgive me. I've met believers who feel like they have drifted so far from God and they have done things that are just horrible and despicable, and they have. And they feel like God cannot forgive them. It's not true. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. Even look at look even here at, in verse 31 and 32. Isn't it interesting? He, in verse 32, he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, well, that could be forgiven. It's this, it's who speaks against the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking that it's in this special set of circumstances with Jesus Christ there present doing the work of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit doing that work through the second person of the Trinity. That's what was unforgivable. So net it out. I could talk a lot more about it. I can direct you to read a lot more about it. But let me just tell you, none of us have committed the unpardonable sin. All of us have committed plenty of sin, way too much sin. And for all of that, there's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back out. What's going on in this passage? Jesus does a miracle. And these Pharisees looked at it 
And they said, okay, we've got our reason. We now have a slogan as to why this guy needs to be destroyed. This guy did it in the power of Satan. He does the work of Satan. Let's just finish the passage, and then I want to get to the so what. Look at verse 33. Jesus said here, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For the tree is known by its fruit. What, what, what's coming out is revealing the character. You brood of vipers. That's what he's calling these Pharisees. There's religious leaders who had just said that he did, what he did was in the spirit and power of Satan. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out what that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man, that's you, you Pharisees, the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men speak, they shall render an account for it in the day of judgment. By your words, you Pharisees, you shall be justified And by your words, you shall be condemned. So what do we take away from this? We're we're kind of stopping in the story here, but it's an crucial place to, to stop. Because what we saw last week, they came to the conclusion Jesus had to be destroyed. And when they came to today was they found a reason to destroy him at least one that they wanted to buy. He does this in the spirit and power of Satan. Now, what can we grab out of this? What's the so what? Well, we could sit and talk about the whole demon possession thing. And that'd have a lot of merit. I mean, the truth of the matter is so what? I mean, that is serious stuff. And I think every one of us need to take heed that First Peter 5, 7. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion. Truth of the matter is, folks, we are in a spiritual battle. So what? You better be careful. And we need to be careful with our kids and our grandkids and our associations. That's one thing we could talk about. Here's another so what. Another so what is, you know, just the whole discussion about the unpardonable sin. You know, I know I explained it real quickly there and probably raised more questions than than I answered. But the truth of the matter is, I really do believe you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. That is not something that is available to us today. And yet... Probably all of us, if we're honest, have felt like we have done something that put us beyond God's reach. Truth of the matter is, that's not happening. That isn't possible. There is no way that we have gotten ourselves so far from God that the grace of God cannot redeem us, that the forgiveness of God is not available. In these guys' situation, yeah, a once in a history 
situation, they committed something. But that's not you. That's not me. You know, there are way too many believers that are still feeling guilty for something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago. I see parents that are sometimes paralyzed in, in how they raise their kids because I can't say anything to them because that's what I did. And it's almost like Satan has chained them and so they see their children and they can't step in and disciple and mentor like they should because they're still filled with guilt. I've seen spouses that that cannot respond and do well because in their first marriage, they didn't respond and do well. And it's like, we're just going to repeat it over and over and over. That, That whole guilt thing, one of the biggest lies of Satan is that you're not forgiven. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. I mean, the theological term, and it's an incredible theological term, is the word propitiation. It means to be made completely satisfied. And 1 John 2, 2, for example, says that God has been made propitious in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made it so that God is completely satisfied with you. There isn't anything you have done, can do, will do that can remove you from the love of Jesus Christ that is in, that from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Sure, you can you can you can do all kinds of things that affect the fellowship that you have with God. Just like a child with a parent. But there's nothing you can do that changes that relationship. Why? Because you're so wonderful and God just says, I've got to let him off of anything. No, because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so sufficient that all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Do not let Satan make you feel inappropriately guilty. That guilt is sometimes used by the Holy Spirit to get us to that 1 John 1, 9 moment where we agree with God that was wrong and that fellowship is restored. But it's the forgiveness that's already been laid on the cross of Christ. Here's one thing I want to wrap it up with. Talked about... uh, the whole demon possession thing, talked about the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. But, you know, just going forward, you know, and perhaps some uh, uh, encouragement for Thanksgiving. You know what? Just, Just in a general way, you ask yourself, what did these Pharisees do? What was the big mistake they did? They failed to give God credit for what God had done. Here's my so what that I'd love for all of us to take home. Give God credit for what God has done. I mean, here we are, we're moving into this time of thanksgiving, and God has been so good to us. He has been so good to us. 
And, and, you know, I think all of us, and I've talked about it way too often, but the truth of the matter is coming out of the, the whole pandemic thing and just the way life has, has, has accelerated, all of us are running on empty. Our tongues are hanging out. We're tired. We're weary. You know, we would have just, you know, if we were honest with ourselves, we would have said, you know, it would have been nice to just have another Sunday off and just sit at home and drink the coffee and veg, you know, but we had to get up and get there and, you know, we're exhausted and our kids are exhausted and our grandkids are exhausted and the people that are around us are exhausted. We're all on empty. But the truth of the matter is we're also incredibly blessed. There's one person in this room that can't look at their situation and find nine things that God has done positively for them. But we're letting the one negative area of our life totally trump the other nine. We're incredibly blessed. God has been so generous to us. God has been so gifted, gifting to us. And what we need to do is give God credit for that. And here's one of the things I want to just challenge you to do this week and the next week. Let's verbally give God credit. You know, we always talk about, you know, how do I need to, you know, I wish I could share my relationship with Christ with people that don't know Christ. I wish that somehow I could kind of raise my profile as a believer. I, you know, I'm in this office, I'm in this paper mill, I'm in this school, and everyone knows I go to church and they kind of think I'm a Christian, but, you know, that's about it. And, you know, how do I raise that? Well, maybe one of the things we can do to raise that profile is just verbally give God credit. Man, God enabled me to do this. Man, I'm just so thankful that God did this. God answered that. I mean, just those seven or eight words might just be enough to raise that profile enough. And and what it's going to do is, is it's not just going to tell our coworker or our people we are around that, you know, hey, He's giving God credit. She's giving God credit for that. I think when we speak it out, it also reminds us, I didn't do that. I, I didn't make that happen. God made it happen. That, that was like this little gift that God put into my life because he loves me, because he's generous, because he's compassionate. Give God credit. I mean, in a way, categorically, not doing that is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. And you did it when the Pharisees did it in the wrong way, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. It cost them hell. You and I dare not rob God of the glory. So, so just word of encouragement. This week... Give God credit for what he has done because he has done so much for us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the chance to walk through this uh, packed passage. So many things here to uh, walk away with. Uh, The whole admonition to holiness and being 
sober and vigilant. Father, the fact that we're forgiven. And Father, the fact that you have worked so much in our lives. All these things, Father, we pray that you would help us to take them away and to put them to use. And Father, as as we begin to move towards just a time when we're trying to be intentionally thankful, I do pray, Father, that uh, we'd see what you did and we'd let it be known. We'd speak it out that you did that for us and give you credit, give you praise, and therefore have a thankful heart. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.